0: Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man but at 26 still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. (laughs)
1: Hello, I'm Sam Ruddock, producer of Mantor The Masculinity Conversations. In this episode, I'm stepping up to hosting this podcast so that I can talk to James about his debut poetry collection, Manatomy, which charts his journey from boyhood to manhood. James, it is a delight to speak to you again. Hello, thank you
0: for having me on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So tell our listeners about Manatomy. So yes, this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about Manatomy, which is uh, a poetry collection that I've just had released by Burning My Books, uh, in part about masculinity. So the book is structured in three parts, which isn't pretentious at all. And those parts are called Boy, Youth and Man. The first third of the book, Boy, is about uh, experiences of growing up as a camp gay boy in the 90s. And the second section of the book, Youth, is about those adolescent experiences of being a young gay person and also about the repercussions of those boyhood experiences on adolescence. And then the third and final section of the book is about being a gay man in contemporary Britain and the repercussions of those boyhood and adolescent experiences on your relationship with yourself, your partners, the world, the LGBTQ scene as a gay adult.
1: Up until now, you've you've predominantly focused on playwriting. What drove that move towards
0: poetry? I think there's several reasons for that. I think, first and foremost, the first section of the book, Boy, was written on my MA in 2016 at UEA as a solo play. And I was going to perform it off the back of my first solo play, Rubber Ring, which I did in 2016. Whilst I really enjoyed... The experience of rubber ring in so many ways it was the loneliest time of my life because I was either in dressing rooms on my own in trains on my own in bars on my own or in hotels on my own afterwards uh so I didn't really fancy doing another solo show but I really liked the text that I'd written for uh that new solo show which was called Monatomy but it was quite short and I thought okay well if there isn't a play in this maybe there's the start of a spoken word uh, piece and so for the three years after that I then wrote more poems for that youth and the man section. So I think it came about solely because I didn't really fancy doing another play because of the loneliness of doing solo work. Uh, I think I wanted to do spoken word poetry because poetry felt like such an antidote to the world of theatre where plays would take three years to finish and get produced. They exist for a month. They're 30 quid for an audience to come and see. If you're writing about working-class queer people, as I tend to, the chances are they might not be able to get up to London and see them or afford to be able to see them. Uh, there was such an immediacy to poetry, you could write something in the morning and gig it at night, at the open mic night, which I love, because it was so contrary to that world of theatre where gatekeepers were saying, we love your play, we'll do it in three years, or we really like your play, but we've done another gay play this year, so we can't do yours. Uh, I think, artistically, it came about from my wanting to not speak through characters anymore. I think so much of that playwriting work was me wanting to say stuff, but being too anxious to say it from my body, if you like. So I hid behind uh, fictional characters and that allowed me to say things to people that I felt uncomfortable saying as me. But as I've worked through things, uh, through writing about them, certainly through talking to friends about them, through talking to therapists about them, I felt more comfortable about owning something and not needing to metaphoricalize it or package it as a character but say this is me this is my experience uh, have it and I think all those elements have contributed to my writing the book really
1: that is fascinating and that idea that it's part of your wider journey towards owning and understanding your place in the world and moving away from shame has it felt as you imagined it would feel to to be sharing those and to be reading those in the first person and owning those experiences?
0: The day before I knew I was getting my copies of the book for the first time and I was going to see the collection for the first time, I was riddled with anxiety because I got so carried away about someone's going to publish this, this is really exciting. And then on that day before I received the books, I thought, oh my God, this is what they're going to publish. They're going to publish really intimate experiences. They're going to exist in the world they're going to go to strangers hands and that book might outlive me and that's a terrifying thought so initially it was a really daunting thought when i received the books i calmed down about that but it felt like it felt like the end of a sexual experience if you like kind of this four years worth of foreplay of writing the book and the build up to publication and then you get the books and bang it's over quite quickly and you've got this thing in your hands sharing the work with people has been Really, really lovely, albeit so strange because of Instagram live launches. The fact you can't be in a room with people telling your truth, which, as I said, is one of the kind of artistic intentions onto the book, is that I wanted to stand on a stage and talk for myself as opposed to through characters for once, and I haven't been able to do that yet. So I feel like I haven't really had that full experience of releasing the book. But from what I've heard from readers or listeners to those online launches, uh, LGBTQ listeners feel seen, which is uh, just incredibly beautiful response to have to the work and straight people who have read it have contacted me saying I understand to some degree uh, what that gay experience might feel like now and I think all the work be that plays be that this podcast series be that poetry is representing a group of people in in their truth if you like in the hope that that group of people feel seen and people who aren't part of that community better understand and reassess how they perceive that group at a time when so much rubbish is written about LGBT communities by people who aren't part of that group, be that the media, uh, newspapers, whoever. So I feel like it's landed really nicely with lots of people regardless of gender and sexuality.
1: Just on a personal level, I, I this is by no means the first book about um, the LGBT experience that I've read, but what... I'm not sure I've ever read a book which more clearly explores and explains how that feeling of difference influences every single thought you have in the world. From the kind of experience of walking down the street to the experience of looking at yourself in the mirror, every single one of those is is mitigated through this prism of feeling different. And I thought that was one of the great strengths of this is is how eloquently and how simply you present that
0: thank you very much that's a beautiful thing to say i think that's a really lovely reading of it but also hearing that makes me really sad because when someone says mm-hmm. says that back to you you think oh goodness that's <laughs> is that a positive thing is that a negative thing i remember talking to charlie kane on one of these podcast episodes uh camp trans man camp trans man, uh and just said that beautiful thing that you're being other gives you a view of the world that so few people will get to have and that's a beautiful thing and i think his saying that has certainly changed my perspective on that otherness framing how you see things. But certainly when I wrote the book over those four years, I don't think it has been a positive thing. I think someone said to me recently that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I love that thought. I think I just want to have a day where I don't have to think about my identity. And I don't think I've ever had that day because Uh, I either read something on Twitter that someone's posted that's homophobic or there's a newspaper article that's homophobic or someone looks at you the wrong way or calls you something terrible and your sense of self is derailed and you become six again so I think it's a common experience and I wish I could change it I wish I didn't have to think about identity all the time but we live in a world that kind of triggers thoughts about identity and I do think I'm getting there again through therapy, that sense of if you can't change something, you acknowledge that all of this is in you and probably be there for a very long time. If you can't change it, you've got to change your attitude towards it or actually won't grow. And I think I'm making peace with that sense of, okay, I feel different and that's not a bad thing. Or, okay, I feel different. I've acknowledged that that's there now. Let's get on with the day and not give it headspace anymore. So, yeah, I'm ambivalent about how I feel about that. I think it's a positive thing that you are privy to that unique view on the world that so many people won't get and certainly that can fuel writing and artwork but there are times when I think I would give all that up just to not have to think about my identity and feel other in so many social spaces, professional spaces, whatever it might be.
1: Absolutely and, and you know it's a strength in the way that having been forced to confront vulnerability can be a resource when you're retrospectively reflecting on it it can yeah. give you a lot but that doesn't change the simple fact that the experience of going through that is incredibly difficult and there is no guarantee that you ever will reach that other side so yeah what I, I don't i don't read it as a as a oh i'm, I'm fortunate to um have reached this other side and to be have, have this privileged different mm. view of the world i re- read it as a it confronts me with my own privilege that, you know, I have never had to have those thoughts. You know, I've had other different challenges, but that sense that to my very core, I am not different in that way. I I didn't wake up, you know, as a 14-year-old boy and think, shit, I'm different and I'm in trouble and I'm in danger. And that thought hasn't then been replicated in so many, so many different ways throughout the rest of my life every day in every context I, I came away with that from that with a sense of, of great privilege and great empathy and great appreciation for how you have presented that so artistically and so viscerally you've done that great thing that literature does which is put me into your skin so I'm seeing the world through your eyes and feeling almost like it's being in your skin and that's what I really appreciated
0: thank you it's a lovely thing to say i'm glad it evoked that empathy because i said in previous answer to one of those questions i just think so much is written about the lgbt community by people who aren't part of that community and that warps everybody's sense of that community if you are exposed to that stuff as an lgbtq person at the wrong time in your development it can completely derail your sense of self and it can completely warp people's view of the LGBT community as well so i think this is why I will constantly write about LGBTQ lives because I think I will stop doing it when I need to stop doing it. And when I can stop doing it until people tell the truth about us. Uh, So I feel that real mission is that I think with that sense of putting you into my skin as a person, I think that comes back to that idea of, I really toyed with that idea in the book of how much first person do you write in? uh, Because, I think the book is written in a way that feels quite autobiographical in terms of there's very specific experiences addressed and so few of them are autobiographical. I just wanted to create that style and that tone of this is direct address, this is uh, not confessional writing. I don't like that term confessional because to confess means to admit to wrongdoing and I don't think any of the book is about that. That kind of testimonial writing, if you like, I wanted to create that real sense of this is me telling you my story in the pub really privately. Even though lots of it isn't necessarily autobiographical, so I'm glad that felt like you were that involved in seeing the world through my eyes, if you like.
1: Yeah, and I think that comes across as well in that, in the style that you you take. You know, your poetic style is worn very loosely. Um, it's a very open verse mm. form. It's really interesting to hear that it started life as a play because it does have that narrative feel to it, and I'm really interested what apart from that thing of being able to own the poems and to stand up and present them on stage as yourself, what does poetry allow you to do in this that a play or another form of of writing, maybe a more narrative form of writing, doesn't allow you to do?
0: I think that's a really good question. I think for me as a reader of poetry, I love it because it feels like the literary equivalent the literature equivalent of heroin if you like it's so much emotion so much feeling so much adrenaline uh packed into this little shot of words and i think for plays uh you can do in 10 lines what you might strive to do in two hours of stage time i think there's a real immediacy and brevity and profundity to that brevity that i get from poetry that i don't get from playwriting i think when I will have an idea for a piece of work, I would think if it's about a group of people or it's about a journey, then it's probably going to be a play. I think with a poem, it's about a moment or an encounter uh, and it might be reflective and retrospective as opposed to forward-looking and active, which a play will be. So I think they're the biggest differences in the forms for me. I think with poetry as well, uh, I always have that battle as a playwright between class and being a playwright. I think, so so many plays are so expensive to produce and see, and I find that sits really uncomfortably with me when I write something uh, about thinking, OK, I've written a play that's two hours long. This is going to cost people 50 grand to produce and 30 quid to see. Am I comfortable with that? And I don't think I am. Whereas with poetry, you might pay nothing to come and see it in a pub, uh, or you might spend a tenner on the book, and that might be the only financial transaction, but you'll just get all the meat and music that you get in a play for the same uh it for less investment so i think there's something there feels like there's something far more uh aligned with my working class values with poetry whereas playwriting still feels like it's a world shrouded in money uh which makes me feel quite uneasy
1: that's really interesting and it also speaks to something that you repeatedly talk about in the first series around how playwriting is described to you as solving problems through conversation. And it kind of gives the other side of this, that, that poetry is solving problems as yourself, which I really like. Um, and those kind of echoes between this collection and the podcast are, are very clear as you read it, you know, the structure of boy, youth, man, very yeah. recognizes and reflects the structure that we've adopted in this podcast of 6.16.26. How do these kind of three simple headings of boy, youth, man, define the journey to where you are today?
0: Well, just as that structure in the book is kind of a domino effect, if you like. The boy experiences lead to the youth experiences that lead to the man experiences. I do feel like that in my life and I'm sure it's true for everybody. That what happens to you as a childhood shapes your teenage life and what happens in both of those stages affects your adult life. On that notion as well of the similarities between the plays and the poetry and the podcast, I think having therapy has just given me the vocabulary to explain why those similarities might recur in the work. And uh therapist has helped me see what my authentic self might look like underneath years of being told you're inferior or unlovable or queer or whatever it is by a heteronormative culture, that sense of, I think that at my core is a desire to communicate something, be that through teaching, writing, talking, And what I'm really passionate about is making people laugh, because I think if you can laugh at everything, you're bulletproof. And there's a real working class mentality that if you can laugh at everything, you're bulletproof. And I think representing the truth about working class queer lives, male lives. So if that feels like that's my authentic purpose, to communicate about those things and to enable other people to communicate about those things through teaching or podcasting. uh, All these projects feel so similar because they just feel like different channels for that purpose, if you like. Uh, so I think I've spotted that in the work previously it's all quite similar and all kind of talks to each other and had to really block out negativity from uh, so-called friends who would always say oh you always make work about the same thing and I would internalize that as a criticism and then thought actually well that's a positive thing I think it means I've got obsessions and I've got something that preoccupies me and uh, I think working with that therapist has allowed me to see why it's Asking what is your authentic self? What is your purpose? That purpose is to communicate about certain things and all of these projects we've worked on allow me to communicate those things to different people through different forms.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that that notion of humour, you know, the way we've been talking about this um, could give the impression that this is quite a serious collection... It's so far from that. It's immediate. It's uh, there's a lovely quote from uh, the poet Molly Naylor who just ta- calls it this funny, frank, and filthy debut. Yeah, and it is all absolutely. of those three things. It's very funny. It's very <laughs> filthy, and it is very frank.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a p- another kind of playwriting technique as well of making uh, LGBTQ theatre for an audience that I don't just want to be LGBTQ people so that other people can understand how it feels to be that person. I think a way to uh, get ideas to people and make people uh, engage with things they might not engage with normally is to turn them into jokes. And you think, I never understand why humour isn't taken seriously in theatre. People always have this thing that plays can't have jokes in them. I think, well, if you've got a joke in your play, someone if someone laughs at something, you know they've heard it, understood it, and given that animal response that they can't control. Uh, so it's been processed. Mm. And I think it's the same with poetry. I think if you can package things that might be difficult to say uh, or difficult to hear in a humorous way, if people laugh at them, you know they've heard them and processed them because they've given that primal response back. So I think humor is a tool that's so uh, either underestimated or uh, written off in the world of poetry and playwriting because it's not deemed as highbrow enough. But I actually think it's such a powerful tool and such a powerful litmus test of if your ideas are landing and are being processed by your audience, your readers.
1: Yeah, and then just to give a, a little example of that, and I'll probably ask you to maybe give us a little flavour of the collection um, in a second, but one of my favourite poems from it is just this little three-line uh, three line poem that comes towards the end of it, and it's called Dom or Sub, and it's a conversation. Are you Dom or Sub? Dominoes. I would never eat at a Subway's. <laughs> I just love that. I just think it's so <laughs> it's so playful, and it, it comes after a very serious poem about those sorts of things. And uh,
0: yeah, it's just it it just made me guffaw. You see, I'll slave away on massive ballads, and then a little haiku about pizza and sandwiches makes you laugh the most. But I think the reason it's in there is because I just wanted to use humour just to mock the daftness of how seriously people take labels. Mm-hmm. And I think doing something like that. Addressing this massive thing in a short-form haiku and mocking it by turning it into a bit of wordplay uh, allows you to highlight the ridiculousness of people's uh, obsession with labels. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually a great summary of the collection. It's a,
1: an exploration and a, a rejection of labels.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Is now a good time to to invite you maybe to share a few poems from the collection?
0: By all means, yes. So I will read uh, a poem from each section of the book just to give a flavour of that arc. Uh, so the first poem I'll do is from uh, the first section, Boy, and this is about the first time I heard the word gay and the effect that had on me. So this is a poem called Spice Girls, Dolls. 1998. Happy meals, T.Y. Beanie babies and Top's TV. A Saturday afternoon in Toys R Us. Mum and Dad say I can pick any gift I want to celebrate my first full week at school. I could have a toy Budgie the little helicopter or a remote control brum. But I don't want either of those things. I want a posh spice doll. Dad suggests a Tamagotchi. Mum tells Dad that a Tamagotchi won't spice up my life. Dad tells Mum that she's not to buy me a girl's doll. Gay boys play with dolls. And this is the first time I hear that word. I don't know what it means, but I know it can't mean something nice because of the way Dad spits it out of his mouth. Whilst I don't know what that word means, my ears burn when I hear it. Like Mum said ears are supposed to when someone is talking about you. So I ask Dad what it means. Dad tells me that it, um, well, it, uh, it means happy, someone. I ask him if he's gay then. He says, no, I'm not gay. I'm married to your mother. I know being gay doesn't mean being happy. Why would Dad be this angry about me being a happy boy? Whatever nasty thing it really means, I realise it has something to do with dolls. I only want a posh spice doll as I want to see what's under a dress. I only want a posh spice Dolls. as I love the Spice Girls and want all the merchandise. But then and there I vow that I'll try to stop playing with dolls. Then Dad won't be angry. Then I won't be a gay boy. I think I've still got that Tamagotchi. So the next section of the book is called Youth. And this is a poem about gay bars. And after you finally come out and said the word gay, that word you struggled to say for so many years, you think the hard work is done. And you go to a gay bar thinking you're going to meet an incredibly welcoming environment, which in the main you do. But there might also be bars uh, that want to know if you're a top or a bottom, a twink or a bear. They want to know what type of gay you are. And if you're the wrong type of gay, you're not allowed to come in and party with your community. And you feel just as lost as you did before you were trying to find the word for your sexual identity. And this is a poem about that. This is called The Wrong Type of Gay. I went out on Saturday to a nightclub that was gay. Men in there stopped me to say, turn around and go away. You are the wrong type of gay. You cannot come into play, because of how you mince and sway. Because your manner is too fey, because you're such a camp cliché. You are the wrong type of gay. I'm the wrong type of gay me, I am the wrong type of gay. I'm a minority me, within my minority, I am the wrong type of gay. Then more men joined in to say Cause you can quote Doris Day Cause you love Betty and May Cause you sing songs from Broadway You are the wrong type of gay Cause you don't work out all day Cause your pecs aren't hard as clay Cause your clothes are pink, not grey Cause you're wearing a beret You are the wrong type of gay I'm the wrong type of gay me I am the wrong type of gay I thought it would be we Gee, but it's still them and me. I am the wrong type of gay. Thank you. So this third and final poem is the last poem in the book and the last poem in the section, Man. And this is 14 Things I Wish I Could Tell My 14-Year-Old Self. Don't wait until you're 18 to start living openly as a gay man. You and everyone who matters to you already knows that you're gay and they will be fine with it. Because you don't come out until you're 18, there are so many boys you never kiss or sleep with who wanted to kiss or sleep with you. You will regularly regret not kissing or sleeping with them. You'll be a professional writer, performer and creative writing teacher. Your dreams come true. Don't waste time on relationships with people solely because they're sexy, popular or well-connected in the arts. They will leave you feeling fake, inferior or bored. Time spent with them could be time spent singing with mum, laughing with Amber or talking with Lyndon. Don't try to be cool. Don't try to be hot. Don't try to be cold. Just be warm. You don't have to try to be warm. Do not get social media. You will get addicted to getting likes. Your attention span will get fucked and you'll get sad because you'll compare your life to the lies other people tell online about their lives. The time you spend on social media shouting about having experiences could be time spent having experiences. You will be funny, chatty, clever, kind, creative, trusted and respected. You will wear great blazers, you will have a great beard and you will have a great quiff. Dad adores you. He just doesn't understand you yet. Because you don't understand you yet. And so you can't show Dad who you are yet. But you'll come to understand who you are. You'll show Dad. He'll understand you and he'll love you for being you. No one really cares about how you look or who you sleep with because they're too busy caring about how they look and who they sleep with. So stop worrying about how you look and who you sleep with and just look how you like and sleep with who you want. Gay men don't just have sexual relationships with each other. You will have profound friendships with so many gay men. You will console each other about your pasts and help each other through your presence. You will teach each other things school should have taught you how to love yourselves, how to love each other, and what your history is. You will be alright at sex. You'll be kiss loads and you will get a job you love. So stop wasting childhood, worrying about adulthood, because as an adult you will mourn the fact you spent childhood worrying about being an adult. You will meet Stephen Fry. He will hug you and tell you that he likes your bow tie. Don't wear bow ties don't wait until you're 18 before you start listening to morrissey his music is medicine it will be all right jimmy mac be brave enough to be yourself and live your truth i love you because you've been shamed you don't love you yet but you will you will you will Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for that reading, James. That's just wonderful. Just wonderful. Really, really appreciate that. One of the things that, that really came through every single one of those poems is your relationship with popular culture and how immediately we can place ourselves within your journey because you give us those, those common touch points. You know, whether it's the Spice Girls in that first one, um, Betty Davis in, in the middle one, um, yeah. you know, Singing with Your Mum in the third one. And I have to blame you for um, mentioning Bewitched in one of your poems, which sailor yes. um, vie in my head, which I think is probably the best pop song of the 1990s
0: <laughs> in my head
1: for the last 48 hours in the most delightful way.
0: Good. <laughs> I think my obsession with pop culture as a writer and as a person, because it's how you see yourself if you're a gay person. Do you know what I mean? I've, I think I've spoken another episode of the podcast as well about when you're five, for instance, and you know you're different, but you don't know what that difference is you can point to yourself in popular culture. You can say, I'm like this person, even though you don't know who you are yet. You can point to RuPaul or you can point to Judy and Clary. And uh, yeah, if you're not seeing yourself at school or in your friendship groups, you're going to see yourself as a gay person in that popular culture.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, and that experience you you mentioned just in that third poem there, in the 14 things, say to my 14 year old self, mention Stephen Fry. Um, Stephen Fry is one of many, celebrities and famous people who have given you amazing quotes in this book. What is it like to have been seen by someone who you are so used to seeing and projecting yourself into?
0: Wow, what a question. I think I think everything I do professionally is for my teenage self to let him know that he's gonna be okay. And I don't know whether that's healthy, but I know that's the truth. That's just how it is. And I think If he knew that a man who had given him the courage and the vocabulary to come out and start writing would one day read his writing and endorse it in the beautiful way that he has, uh, he would weep. And that's, I suppose, my way of displacing and saying that I wept when I got that quote from Stephen Fry. I just think it is uh, such a moving experience to uh, have someone who shaped and saved my life in so many ways uh, give that quote. That's
1: a beautiful sentiment and, you know, one that I just want to end by thanking you, thanking you for sharing this collection with us. Thank you for being the the brains and the empathy and the heart behind this podcast for helping me learn so much, both about myself and about other men and other people through both this podcast and this book.
0: What a beautiful thing to say. Thank you so much for everything you've given me, that insight, that wisdom and the opportunity and the platform with which to share these things.
1: And just before we go, could you give our readers guidance to where they might get the book,
0: how they can purchase it? Absolutely, I can. So you can find a copy of *Manatomy* in bookshops, but if you'd rather stay inside, buy one online and would like a signed and dedicated copy, you can buy one directly from me at jamesmcdermott.bigcartel.com and I will happily sign and dedicate those in gloves and a mask so you've nothing to worry about so you can pick one up from jamesmcdermott.bigcartel.com
1: do get a copy it's one of those poetry collections which though it's written for performance it feels absolutely like it belongs on the page it's a joy to read enjoy happy reading thank you james
0: thank you sam Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at Productions at gmail.com.